Hello, and welcome to 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. I'm series producer Katie Blackley. On this episode, we'll hike through the woods in Stanton Heights and discover the remnants of a Civil War fort. Then we'll ride the rickety trolley and remember Old Westview Park. But first, were there ever panthers in Pittsburgh? A lot of times, they'll be hanging up in a tree on a very substantial branch, and you could be hiking around and not even realize that you're being watched. (laughs) That story just ahead after the break. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Eisler Landscapes, the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, and Baum Boulevard Automotive. Four bronze panther monuments keep watch over the Panther Hollow Bridge in Oakland. Weathered after a century, the statues appear to stalk passersby. Good Question asker Diane Littman of Squirrel Hill noticed the big cats and... I asked about the history of panthers in Chenley Park in particular, in Panther Hollow. Penn Hill's Jan Hardy admires the statues on her way to work in Oakland. And I wondered when the last time was that anyone saw a panther in the area. It's been more than 100 years since the large felines prowled around Pittsburgh. According to Carnegie Museum of Natural History, Sue McLaren, panthers roamed from Alaska to Panama. When the settlers came to North America, it was actually the most widespread mammal species on the whole continent. Panthers go by a lot of names, cougars, pumas, and mountain lions. McLaren says they were here when European settlers arrived in Pennsylvania in the early 1700s and could adapt to many different habitats from dense forests to grasslands. They'd wander more than 50 square miles to look for food, were mostly nocturnal and great climbers. A lot of times, They'll be hanging up in a tree on a very substantial branch, and you could be hiking around and not even realize that you're being watched. (laughs) But, McLaren says, panthers weren't interested in eating humans. Rather, they'd feast on squirrels, deer, and, back before they were driven out of the region, elk and moose were a favorite meal. Panthers were solitary creatures, except during the mating season. When Pennsylvania's human population increased, the panther population began to decline. As some people started to keep livestock, the panthers and the wolves would also feed on things that the people were trying to tend for their own food. Farmers would target these large felines to save their own goats and cattle. Plus, people were scared of panthers. According to McLaren, hunters were incentivized to kill mountain lions in the early 1800s. As people expanded into the region's dense forests, logging affected the state's ecology. Probably the viable populations in Pennsylvania, the ones that males and females who could find each other, (laughs) you know, for the breeding populations, probably were gone by the late 1800s. Since then, there have been occasional panther sightings, but McLaren says it's typically when people have lost their illegally owned large cat or there's been an escape from a zoo. A different type of panther can be found in Oakland. It's the mascot of the University of Pittsburgh. Because it was a very noble animal, indigenous to the wilds of the Pittsburgh area way back when. Sam Shulo Jr. is a Pitt athletics historian. The alliteration of it too, Pitt, Pitt Panthers, Pittsburgh Panthers, it just had a nice feel, a nice ring to it. No other school was using the panther as a mascot when it was adopted in 1909, And the colors of the panther's fur, golden, were close to the university's gold and blue. 
Shula says the athletic teams have embraced the big cat as a mascot named Rock and in its fight songs. Pitt has always played off the, the name Panther. A lot of times they would use it in the uh, battle cry for the season. Artistic renderings of the animal can be seen throughout Pittsburgh, from the fountainheads at the Cathedral of Learning to the cartoonish panther at the Shenley Plaza Carousel. But it's unlikely the living version will return to the region anytime soon. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from the CPA firm Sisterson & Company, Bomb Boulevard Automotive, and Eisler Landscapes. Welcome back. Tucked away in Pittsburgh's East End, Stanton Heights is a quiet residential community filled with brick houses, families walking dogs, and lots of trees. But hidden in the woods is a piece of history that would have been anything but quiet when it was built 150 years ago. Stanton Heights resident and Good Question listener Chris Como heard a rumor about a Civil War battery called Fort Krogan, concealed in the woods near the intersection of Stanton and Morningside Avenues. And I look up in the woods and think, I wonder if the woods still look the same now as they did back then, if erosion has changed things, and just kind of curious about where somebody without any buildings or housing in the way would choose to put a fort. Imagine it's 1863. The North and South in the young United States are fighting each other in the Civil War, and Pittsburgh workers are producing ammunition at Allegheny Arsenal and shipping out supplies for the Union Army. Soldiers and Sailors Memorial Hall and Museum curator Michael Krauss says the city was vital to the war effort. Ammunition was made, cannons were mounted on carriages, caissons built, a lot of leather work came out of Allegheny Arsenal, bridles, saddles, strapping for artillery. Pittsburgh was just beginning to develop its reputation as an industrial and manufacturing center. The city's workers produced nearly 1,200 artillery guns, or about 15% of the wartime artillery. The region also sent thousands of soldiers to the battlefield. 25,000 men from Allegheny County would enlist and go to the Civil War. And of those, about 3,000 wouldn't come home. At this point, the Confederate Army was still strong, and Krauss says that was making Pittsburghers pretty nervous, especially when word arrived about the invasion of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, just 200 miles east of the city. And that sent shockwaves across the state, including here, because they thought that Pittsburgh could be invaded as well. So it was deemed that there should be a ring of forts built around the Pittsburgh area. So there are 37 forts built around here. Few of the forts looked like the big, solid structures many would imagine. Most of them were what Krauss calls earthworks, basically tall walls of dirt with trenches and space for soldiers to position artillery. Others were scattered around the city, there were a dozen on the south side and west end, and several protecting the east end in Oakland and Greenfield. Hundreds of area men stopped what they were doing to help build the fortifications. They closed all the businesses, closed the bars, because <laughs> it's hard to motivate people if the bars are open. The fort built in Stanton Heights was situated on the estate of William Krogan, a wealthy lawyer who had a daughter named Mary. She would go on to wed a British officer three times her age, named Edward Shenley. She's now regarded as one of Pittsburgh's most well-known philanthropists. The Krogan property was ideal because the high elevation gave troops a good view of any invasion coming down the Allegheny River. I met up with listener Chris to see what was left of the fort. The most convincing part of this site is that it's curved about 
about a third of a circle maybe. And uh, there are no trees at all through the top of the mound. It looks like it's, looks like nobody's been back here to build anything in quite some time. In the woods near the intersection of Morningside and Stanton Avenues, we found a raised area of land, weathered after the years, but still visible, with a view of Morningside and Highland Park. Little was done after the war to preserve the makeshift forts. This land in Stanton Heights, owned by the Krogan Shenley family, became a golf course. Today, it's the private property of a senior citizen's home. Coming up after the break. My parents met in the summer of August of 1947 at Westview Park at a dance. Let's revisit Westview Park. WESA's Good Question podcast is made possible with support from Baum Boulevard Automotive, Eisler Landscapes, and the CPA firm Sisterson & Company. When warm weather arrives, Pittsburghers swarm to Kennywood Park for thrilling rides and entertainment. But for more than 70 years, another Pittsburgh amusement park rivaled Kennywood. Let's learn from residents and historians about Westview Park, the much-loved attraction along Route 19, just six miles from downtown. Westview Park was a really important part of all of my summers. That was the number one thing to do during the summer, was to go to Westview Park. And the day there was just amazing. You would go ride all the rides, probably eat too much food. There was always something new to find. There was no Disney World. There were no Six Flags. There was no Sea World. So it was these little parts like Westview, like Kennywood, that we flopped to in the summer. Theodore M. Harton, he was the founder of the T.M. Harton Company, and the, that company made amusement rides. The owners owned a lot of rides. They owned rides at Conneaut Lake, Cedar Point, and then they decided around 1906 to build one of their own. T.M. Harton was an influential roller coaster manufacturer. Westview Park as a location made sense because the actual park itself was a thing. There used to be racing that happened there, and then there it was just kind of a general picnic ground until it was developed into an amusement park. Remember, we were boomers. We were graduating classes of 700, 800. There was a kid in every other house, and of those kids, they probably had three to five siblings. You know, so there were kids all over the place. A lot of people were moving up into the area because there were a lot of uh, economic benefits to living there. The end of the school year, the beginning of the summer was always your school picnic. And all of the school districts, you went, if you were on the other side of the city, you went to Kennywood. If you were on this side of the city, you went to Westview Park. Most of the times that I was there were for school picnics. We never went to Kennywood. We always went to Westview Park. We went out on the trolley car across the big old shaky bridge. And they were rickety old trolleys, and everybody got on the trolley. We used to ride the streetcar from the north side out to Westview Park, and that was like our first amusement park ride. And so you would get off the streetcar, and looming to your right was the racing whippet. The racing whippet was always a favorite, and you know, some of us would go on one, and some of us would go on the other to see who would win, and it was always different. You could never really predict it. The dips were the main roller coaster. They were beautiful. They were towards the side of the hill as you go down Route 19. They were a really marvelous wooden roller coaster. Right up was like, ding -a ding -a ding -a ding -a ding It took forever to get up the hill. First hill, second hill, Third hill did this, and then it went down, went around the corner, and then the little hills, and they went back. 
I made the comment once on the Western Park page years ago. Okay, fess up. How many of you got your first kiss on the tunnel of the big dip? And, you know, about 95 people came through and said, yeah, I tried to make a move on a girl there and I almost got thrown out of the car. We had family friends and they had a son, Henry, who I always had a crush on. And at our uh, school picnic, he asked me to ride on the dips with him. And there in the darkened tunnel, evidently, Henry had a little crush on me, too. I received my very first kiss there. They uh, uh, built a fun house called uh, Cats and Jammer Castle. And they had a Frazzle House, a House of Enchantment, a Hilarity Hall. Those were all different kinds of fun houses, dark rides. Yeah, all the games in the arcade were fun. You know, most of them you just needed a penny. So we would save our pennies all summer so that we could spend them at Westview when we got there. My grandparents both worked at Westview Park. My grandmother worked rides at different times, and it was there that she met my grandfather, who worked on the uh, merry-go-round there. And they ended up getting married and having two daughters, and uh, that's how it all started with us. When I was a little bit older, um, I started going to Danceland. 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 I have an aunt and uncle who met at Danceland. My parents met in the summer of August of 1947 at West Street Park at a dance. At the end of the dance, my father asked my mom if he could give her a ride home, and she agreed. It's a great place to socialize, practice the latest dance craze, and perhaps meet someone who would change the rest of your life. They would have a, some featured singer every week, but then there would also be local singers, and a lot of local singers really got their start out there. The Rolling Stones played their first concert in Pittsburgh there. Then it, it burned to the ground, and that seemed to be the beginning of the end. Now, here is the other side of Westview Park. Welcome to the early 60s. It was a very segregated time in our lives, and they were trying to keep black people out. Just talking about Westview Park as Westview Park, and not putting at least this segment of Westview Park in the time frame where it belongs, because Westview Park could not fly today. By 1977, Westview Park was falling behind the times quite significantly. Westview closed on a couple of reasons. One thing is the management didn't want to continue it. It was really sad whenever you know, we heard that it was closing and it was going to be turned into a shopping center. A lot of people will point to Kennywood put in their first million dollar ride, the log jammer, in 75, and that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. But it, it was it was really some multiple factors. Uh, schools were not having all these different picnic events because there were fewer schools. We recently moved and we're just about a couple miles away from the shopping center where Westview Park used to be. And I go shopping there every now and then and it kind of brings back all the memories. It was really a cacophony of uh, sound, the sights, especially the dips, and the smell of the food. You know, from Memorial Day to Labor Day, something was always going on there. Westview Park was the place that we went forever. That was a part of history. I said, you know, what's Pittsburgh going to be with Westview Park? My name is Pat Trapani. Hi, I'm Jim Warbeneth. My name is Janet Pizinski. My name is Jean Stelmack. My name is Harry Michelson. Emma Lee Hartle. My name is Carol 
Kaw. Charles J. Tackways, Jr. My name is Edie Goodman. As you can tell, Westview Park is still a vivid memory for many older Pittsburghers. Soon, the amusement park's history will be featured for all to see at the Westview Historical Society. President John Shalkowski has been sharing archival photos, articles, and more about the borough of Westview. Earlier this year, he announced that the Historical Society had officially become a nonprofit, and that they were looking for a physical space to display Westview historical items, like... Part of the carousel that once stood in Westview Park, uh, cars from the dips, and many, one of the Alpine sky rides, um, thousands of photographs, uh, hundreds of signed photographs from different big bands that played Westview Park uh, Danceland, for example. While the Historical Society raises money and looks for a permanent physical space, Shulkovsky says he's always looking for Westview Park memories and donations. That's it for today's episode of 90.5 WESA's Good Question podcast. Special thanks to Patrick Doyle and everyone at Pittsburgh Community Broadcasting. And thank you for listening. I'm Katie Blackley. Stay curious.